everyone. Welcome to Evangel Church Online, a safe place for everyone to explore faith in Jesus. And today, it's Good Friday. Why is Good Friday good? Good Friday is good because the price we couldn't pay got paid and the stain we couldn't clean got clean. Good Friday is good because the world was without hope, but the lamb was without blemish. Good Friday is good because the worst thing that could ever happen was simultaneously the best thing that would ever happen. Good Friday is good because on that cross, on that day, the great shepherd of the sheep walked through the valley of the shadow of death for us. Good Friday is good because even though the cross isn't pretty, it's beautiful. Good Friday is good because we have a king who would rather die for his enemies than kill them. Good Friday is good because I am not good, but he is. Good Friday is good because Friday is not the end of the story. Hey, so I just want to let you know what to expect today. Uh, we are going to be walking through a short reflection together, but then we are also going to be led by Pastor Marcus in communion as we reflect on the implications of Jesus going to the cross for us. But before we do that, let's, let's jump into this moment with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for this day, this day that we remember uh, your willing journey to the cross, this willing submission that you submitted yourself to humanity, your creation, and you, Lord, sacrificed your life that we might have life. And so, Lord, we thank you for the implications of the cross and your resurrection and the exalted Jesus. And so, Lord, we pray that you would speak to our hearts today as we reflect, Lord, with a depth of your sacrifice be realized afresh and anew in our souls today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is a day that we set aside every year to consider, to remember, and, and yes, to celebrate the journey our Lord and Savior took to the cross. You know, we celebrate it because of its implications. The, the cross that Christ endured means for us, it means life and freedom. It means the punishment for our sins he took upon himself. We've been released from it. And so there is a, an idea of celebration in this, but it's also a somber moment as we consider the cost of our sin on that cross. But it also means a deferring of judgment to another time. You know, Jesus, uh, when he died upon the cross and rose again, he ushered in a new age. He deferred judgment till later, and he gives each of us the opportunity to say yes to his sacrifice for us. And, and though today's very much about what Jesus did, there are some other supporting characters within the narrative, within the story of the first Good Friday. And we're going to be looking at two characters, two individuals that were key parts of the Good Friday narrative. The first is Pontius Pilate and the second will be Barabbas. Pontius Pilate and Barabbas. 
Now let's start with Pontius Pilate. You know, as I began unpacking this man's life and, and tenure as governor, I began seeing many parallels uh, between him and each one of us in our own spiritual journey. And there, and there are a few things that we know about Pilate from historical extra-biblical writings. And one of those things is he was not a big advocate or fan of the Jewish people. And let, let, me, let me put this into context, what I mean by that. Um, in his early days of ruling, he did things that he knew would antagonize the Jewish people. So for instance, the Romans, they didn't have flags. They had standards. Now a standard was a wooden pole, and at the top of the standard would be a golden eagle or the head of the emperor. And so the, instead of flags, this is the standard is what Rome would have had. And so historically, the governors that preceded Pilate, they would not show and, and have the standards out in public in the Jewish cities. Why is that? Because the Jews considered the standards to be graven images. In other words, they considered them to be idols. And that was so against, right, the law of Moses. And so it created more headache for the governors than it was worth. And so the governors that preceded Pontius Pilate, they didn't put the, the standards up. Pontius Pilate comes into his rule and he goes the exact opposite way and he puts these standards up in prominent places throughout Jerusalem, throughout the city. And it creates an issue, a pretty significant issue. Now here's what you need to understand about Rome. And we're going to be setting up some context because this matters. This plays into our Good Friday narrative. Every region within the Roman Empire had the right to send delegation to the emperor, Tiberius at that time, to petition a change in leadership over their region. And so if a governor of a region went too far, or they created too much turmoil within a particular region, that region had the right to send delegation to petition the removal of that governor. So now we already have Pilate. He's got a bit of a misstep as he puts up these standards. Now, historically, we see that he actually goes back on that, that policy and he takes the standards down because the political pressure has been building. But that's not the only thing that he did. He also determined that Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, needed a new water source. And so he began the project of the aqueduct system bringing fresh water to Jerusalem. That's not the problem. The problem was that he went to the temple treasury and he took money from the treasury to pay for the aqueduct. And that sparked a problem with the Jewish people. So, so Pontius Pilate, he already is under a certain amount of political pressure from his region. And he has to kind of walk carefully as he navigates his rule and his tenure as, as the governor of Judea. So here's where we're at. This is kind of the context. This is kind of the understanding of this man, Pilate, as we come to this moment when Jesus is brought before him. Now, it is interesting to think Pilate did not have absolute rule or power. Pilate was 
uh, he ruled at the pleasure of the emperor. And so the emperor, and not even just the emperor, but even um, there would be someone above him within his region that could remove him. And so we got to like kind of walk this out. He didn't have absolute power in the region. He, he ruled at the pleasure of the emperor. And, and we need to kind of understand this dynamic as we walk into the Good Friday narrative. So in Matthew, we jump into this moment where the chief priests and the elders bring Jesus before Pontius Pilate. In Matthew 27, 1 to 2, when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Now, here's the deal. The chief priests and the elders, they had a problem here. Under Roman law, they did not have the authority to enact capital punishment. So they could not put someone to death. They did not have that authority. Only the Roman governor could walk that out. So in order to make Jesus, you know, the Jesus problem, so to speak, for them to go away, is they needed to involve Pontius Pilate. They needed to involve the governor. And as we read this account, we see them scheming. Because the charge that they have under Jewish law against Jesus is blasphemy. Blasphemy is the charge of declaring yourself or declaring another God, deity. Now here's the problem. Their charge against Jesus was false in terms of blasphemy even because Jesus was God. But they are, they are so against Jesus being the Messiah that they are creating this charge against him of blasphemy. But here's the problem. Pilate does not share in those beliefs. Pilate doesn't care about their Jewish law. He doesn't care about their charge of blasphemy. And so the charge of blasphemy is it's not going to move the needle. They need to come up with a plan. We see kind of what happens in Luke 23, 1 to 5, as they bring Jesus before this governor, Pontius Pilate. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, okay, notice this. This is the charge of blasphemy is what they got going on under Jewish law. But notice what they say to Pilate here. We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. And saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he, Jesus, answered him, you have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. He's teaching that no one should give tribute to Caesar. This is their, this is their uh, accusation. He has declared himself king, and he's mounting a revolution. Do, do you see what they're doing here? They are strategically pushing every button that this governor would not want to hear about an individual within his rule. But even after this ploy is deployed by the Jewish leaders and elders, they can't convince Pilate 
that Jesus is guilty of anything. And in fact, after questioning Jesus, Pilate is impressed with him. And, and there's sort of this poignant moment in John's gospel, in John 19, 10 to 12. So Pilate said to him, said to Jesus, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Pilate is the man of authority in this moment, of earthly authority in this moment. Pilate has the power of life and death over Christ. However, Jesus has this like authority. He has this moment of response to Pilate's claim of his own authority, that he only has that authority because it's been given to him from above. And there's something about the way that Jesus says this to him that Pilate like shifts like 180 degrees. Pilate now becomes an advocate for Jesus. There's something of authority, of confidence, of understanding. Pilate sees something in Jesus that causes him to just begin to advocate for this man. So in this moment, the chief priests, they have to go to plan B. This isn't working. They're not convincing this governor of Jesus' guilt. And so what they do is they begin to stir up the crowd against Jesus and they enact a yearly tradition, the pardoning of a prisoner. And why does this all matter? Well, the only thing that Jesus was guilty of was telling the truth about who he was, the Messiah, and he was the Messiah. And so here Jesus is now falsely accused as rising up to be king, of creating revolution, of speaking against Caesar, but it paints Pilate now into a corner because the accusations are there and now the crowd is getting riled up. And he has to contend with the possibility of losing control of his city, losing control of his region. He's already had the missteps with the Jewish people in the standards early in his rule. He's already had the misstep of uh, going into the temple treasury to pay for the aqueduct system. And now if he loses control of his city in this moment, on this matter, now he's looking for a way of escape. He's looking, how do I escape this while keeping my rule and my kingdom intact? And the pressure begins to build even more. And as, as he's walking out this process, as he's considering these things, seated on the judgment seat, he gets word from his wife, Matthew 27, 19. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. So now there's even, he, he has this intuition that Jesus is innocent, that there's something of authority around Jesus. But now his wife, third party to all of what's going on, comes and sends word, have nothing to do with this righteous man because I have been troubled because of him in my dreams. And Pilate's world is getting small. 
It's kind of coming at him from all sides. He seems to have a revelation of Jesus, at least in part. He has a revelation of Jesus as Messiah, and yet he feels trapped by what it will cost him. There is seemingly no way of escape. And so in a last-ditch attempt, he stands before the mob and he washes his hands in a bowl. And he does this as a gesture of innocence that this man's blood is not going to be on his hands. But the fact is he's not innocent. He has simply chosen political position, power, and influence over the life of the one he knows to be innocent. He's looking for a way of escape when confronted with who Jesus is. The washing of his hands is a futile attempt at redemption. But the power of this moment is that Jesus dies for him as well. In his feeble attempt to wash his hands of the moment and the innocent blood of Christ, he's not free of that guilt. And yet Jesus, his sacrifice, washes that sin away as well. And Jesus dies to forgive this broken moment of turning the Messiah over to the mob for execution. So, so why does this all matter? It matters because we are all Pilate. We are all Pilate. We are those presented with the claims of Jesus as the Messiah, as the King of Kings. And we all wrestle with the notion that Jesus is who he said he was. And if Jesus is who he said he was, we have to contend with how we are going to respond. But there's a sense of outside voices and forces of our culture, our relationships, and sometimes even our families who stand opposed to this premise that Jesus is the Son of God. And in that wrestling, we're, we're confronted with this visceral decision. Like Pilate, do we seek to escape? Do we seek to continue building our own kingdom? Or do we seek to stand with Christ? Do we lay down what we have? for what we will gain by standing with Christ? Or do we cling to the little that the world offers us in terms of wealth and influence and power and relationships and comfort? For Pilate, the choice to stand with Jesus came with the potential of losing everything. But I want you to consider what he would have gained. In Jesus' words to him, it seems like this thing was going to happen with or without his blessing. Now, I want you to picture Pilate, first century, in Jerusalem, seated on the judgment seat, with Christ standing there and the mob before him. Now, if you could just in your mind's eye, in your imagination, zoom out now. Zoom out to the end of days as Christ sits on his judgment seat. What a, what a picture of contrast in that moment. And if, if Pilate, I wonder if Pilate could see this picture of comparison. The exalted, resurrected Jesus, King of all things, seated on the judgment seat in comparison to Pilate's little seat in that little city 
in that little moment. I wonder if things would have been different. You see, Good Friday is so much more than an exercise of remembrance. Often we, we approach this as a, a moment of remembering what happened. But it's a yearly moment for us to ask ourselves the question, will we bear our own cross in this life? Or like Pilate, will we choose our own kingdom? Will we seek a way of escape from submitting to Christ? Or will we pursue Christ no matter the cost? I, I pray that in us seeing this picture, we would not go the way of Pilate, giving into the pressure of the external, but rather we would walk deeply into the revelation of the exalted Jesus, standing with Christ, enduring the cost of that stand, but then being exalted and resurrected in the reality that he has prepared a place for us. You know, Pilate spent his time looking for a way of escape. And from this moment, he looks hard. He looks hard for an exit. May we stop looking for the exit when it comes to Jesus. And may we pursue and stand with no matter the cost. I mentioned that we were going to be talking about two different characters, Pontius Pilate, but there's also another secondary character that we see come up in this narrative. And that is a man named Barabbas. In Matthew 27, 15 to 23. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And, and they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you? Notice Pilate is, again, looking for the escape. He's making the assumption that they are going to seek to release an innocent man over a guilty one. So then they had gathered. Pilate said, who do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas, and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him, let him be crucified. You know, the irony of this moment is Barabbas was most likely a violent insurrectionist. You know, Barabbas was a man who was most likely guilt of the guilty of the very accusations that they were leveling against Jesus. Insurrection, revolution, violence against Rome. And yet in this moment, we see this picture of innocence versus guilt. But I want us to consider for a moment that Barabbas found his freedom that day because of Jesus. This is kind of like a, a preview in the natural world of what Jesus was about to accomplish for humanity, for all of us. This moment serves as a picture of what Jesus is going to do in a spiritual sense, freeing us from bondage. And, and the power of this character, Barabbas, is, you may have guessed it, we are all Barabbas. 
We're all Barabbas, unworthy, guilty, broken, and imprisoned. And yet Jesus' submission to the cross buys us our freedom. But in the background of this scene, we also hear an angry mob. Crucify him. Crucify him. Let him be crucified. And the power of Good Friday is that we are also the mob. And you might look at this story and this narrative and think to yourself, why in the world did Christ submit himself to a journey to a cross and a horrible death for our sake? When we are Pilate looking for a way of escape, when we're Barabbas guilty as charged, and when we're the mob crying out, crucify, crucify this innocent man. You know, Stuart Townsend writes the lyric, ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. He goes on, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. You know, the weight of Good Friday is that we find ourselves throughout the narrative. Moments and seasons of our lives where we chose our kingdom over his kingdom. Where we gave in to the external pressures and tried to wash our hands in justifying our actions. Where we were imprisoned. You know, many of us prisons of our own making, prisons of our own sin and brokenness and decisions. But the power of Good Friday is that Jesus died for us in spite of those realities. Motivated by love, Jesus died for us when we were still enemies of God, Christ died for us. So this Good Friday, may we feel the weight, may we feel the weight of recognizing ourselves in the narrative. But may we also experience the freedom and the liberty as we realize Jesus, despite our brokenness and our sin, still went to the cross, motivated by love, to give us freedom. That's the power of this story. That's the power of this moment. And so Good Friday, we don't just remember, but we recognize that we are part of that story. So Lord, would you give us grace and strength to be confronted by who Jesus is and to not look for a way of escape, but rather to stand with, to stand beside and stand for this Messiah, this Christ who died for us. Lord, may we each experience the freedom and the setting free that comes as we say yes to Jesus and say no to our sin and our brokenness. Lord, it is our sin that held you there. 
It was our brokenness and our sin that compelled you, motivated by love, to go to that cross. And so, Lord, this Good Friday, we stand with you. We stand for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, friends, let's take a moment to just be in the presence of the Spirit as we partake of communion together. Well, thank you so much, Pastor Lucas, for sharing with us the message of Good Friday and why we truly can call it good. Well, we're going to join into a time of communion together. And as I was reflecting on the Easter story, I was so struck with how much expectation there was. Where there's the expectation of the disciples as they were journeying with Jesus and saw what his teachings were truly meaning in this moment. We see the expectations of the crowds as they shouted, crucify him, crucify him. We saw the expectation of Barabbas being set free, hopefully on that day. And we see the expectation of Jesus as well. But for a lot of people in the crowd, and even for us today as we journey through life simply, a lot of the expectations were unmet. And as those people looked upon Jesus' broken body, it led them, I think, to being discouraged, to being displaced, to being confused, and maybe feeling like they were alone. Well, we see in Luke chapter 24 that some disciples who had witnessed the death of Jesus were, were walking down a road called Emmaus. And they were kind of unpacking the moments and the days that they had just experienced and maybe part of that discouragement as well. And it says as they were walking down this road that Jesus appears to them and, and they don't see him. They don't recognize who he is, but he sees them and he starts walking with them and asks them like, hey, what are you guys talking about? And, and they were so caught up in this moment of, of unmet expectation, of dashed hope, that they didn't even see the very person that was walking with them. And so as Jesus asked them this question, they reply like, don't you know? Like, haven't you heard of what's going on here? And they say in Luke chapter 24, verse 21, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. They had hoped. Well, hope is a powerful thing, isn't it? Hope is a powerful motivator uh, when we have hope in something and we are motivated to, to like find that hope and pursue that hope. But it can also be a powerful voice when those hopes are dashed, when our expectation or our hope is unmet. And as Jesus walked with these dejected disciples, we see that scripture records that he began to teach them. He began to remind them of his word. He began to remind them of their promises. He taught them about all of the scriptures and the prophecies that were, that were fulfilled in him. And then we see a beautiful full circle moment with these disciples. And so we're going to read in Luke chapter 24, verse 28 to 32. It says this. It says, so they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And then he vanished from their sight. They said to one another, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road when he opened up to us the scriptures? And they arose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and, he was, and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Didn't our hearts burn within us? 
Jesus reveals himself in the midst of their missed expectations, in the midst of our confusion, in the midst of the kind of in-between of the promise and the fulfillment, just like the people would have experienced on that first Good Friday. Well, today as we take communion, I wanted to invite you on that same road that the disciples took, that you may be coming in right now with expectation or hope or maybe hope dashed. I pray that as we take communion and the same uh, kind of experience that the disciples had when their eyes were open to Jesus, that your eyes too would be opened again to the revelation of who Jesus is, to the one who is our hope. The one who said, is who he says that he is. The one who endured a broken body and shed blood so that we can have hope for a future. The one who is so close to us that he burns in our hearts and illuminates hope. This is the beautiful part about communion. We see that in the breaking of that bread and that sharing of that meal, that the disciples were opened again, the eye, their eyes were opened again to the reality of Jesus and his promises that he had just taught them on that road to Emmaus. That uh, as we join a communion, it's a moment of remembering, of course, of remembering Jesus' broken body, in remembering his shed blood. And it's a moment of great celebration and great hope that this is not the end. And so as we join together in communion on this Good Friday, may our eyes be illuminated together to the hope of Jesus again. That if we're coming in with needs or hopes or expectations, that they would be met in the person of Jesus who died for us, who, who bore a broken body and shed blood so that we can have hope in a person. Well, I'm gonna to read together uh, the, the kind of scripture around communion in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink, eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for this Good Friday. We thank you that you would go all the way unto death on a cross so that we can have the hope of a future. God, I pray that as we come together here on this Good Friday with expectations, with hopes maybe unmet, with hope of healing, hope of restoration, with hope of uh, a future, God, that we would be reminded and that our eyes would be illuminated to who you are, that our eyes would be uh, open to the fact that you are our living hope. God, we thank you for the love that you showed us on that Good Friday. We thank you that we have uh, a moment together to remember that so that we can look forward with eyes filled with hope, eyes that are set on you, eyes that uh, can see you and that cause our hearts to burn within us as we learn from your spirit. And so God, I pray that whatever we're coming in with this evening, God, that you would uh, truly illuminate our eyes to the hope of Jesus. God, we thank you. We love you and we pray this in your name, Lord. Amen.
Amen. Well, friends, thank you so much for joining us on this Good Friday. We hope you have a good rest of your Easter weekend. Just so you know, we would love to see you at our Easter uh, service online at 9 a.m. or in person at 10 a.m.